Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad to be here this morning. It is always uh, when uh, there is a break, when we lost a Sunday due to weather, and then John was here last week, when it goes uh, two, three, four weeks between when I get to be in the pulpit, uh, I am reminded of how much of a privilege it is to do this and to do this here uh, and to open God's Word with you uh, specifically. Uh, So thank you for that privilege, and I'm glad you are here. I hope that you are... Uh, I guess, uh, recovering from the holiday season uh, and have uh, buckled down, getting ready to uh, wait, the long wait for the arrival of summer. Uh, And uh, and I hope that uh, you'll be with us next Sunday. Next Sunday is Awana Sunday. If you've never been to an Awana Sunday, uh, you're going to want to be here. Leaders, children will be in their Awana gear. Uh, We have a special speaker that's going to be focused on the ministry of Awana uh, and we also have some uh, very special uh, surprises in store, and so I hope you'll make sure to join us. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, you know where my heart is this morning. You know, Father, the busyness of our lives, the exhaustion we feel. Lord, we also uh, have a, a real uh, understanding of those that are missing this morning. And I just pray, Father, we think of Bob and Rhonda, and we just pray for your comfort to them today. Lord, again, we pray that you would be with us, that you would help me to preach your word clearly and effectively. We pray for your power through your Holy Spirit to shape us and mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So, for the last three or four winters, we as a church have been in the book of Job. Uh, and in uh, a lot of people, we finished that last uh, last February, I believe it was, and, uh, and I'm glad to hear from many of you to say that that study over those three or four years was very helpful to you. Uh, of course, I knew that we were going to end that study, and so I began the process of uh, of thinking and praying about what God would want us to do. And believe it or not, for the better part of the last year, I have been preparing and studying uh, to preach through the book of Ezekiel. But about two months ago, the Lord made it very clear that Ezekiel was not the direction I was to go. I, I had thought that that was going to be the book that uh, we really needed. It has a lot to say about how people should think about their nation. Of course, this is an election year. And I thought, well, those just things went together. But the Lord made it clear that was not the direction to go. And then for a little while, I thought, well, maybe since I'm not really sure what to do next, we just go through maybe like the book of Esther. We can do that in the winter. Uh, But the Lord made it clear that that was not where we were to go. And then he began to put the book of 2 Chronicles on my mind. This was not on my radar, but it became clearer and clearer that this is the direction we need to go. So this morning, we begin what I think will take about three winters to get through. So we'll preach through this book most of January, February, and maybe a little bit into March. Uh, But uh, it'll take us about three years to get through this book. Read an article recently on the book of Second Chronicles, listing it as one of the most neglected books by all Christians everywhere. It is considered one of the uh, one of the books that most people don't read unless they are going through a read through the Bible in a year plan. And it is very very difficult to find books on this book and to find pastors who have preached through this book. And so it's very neglected, which is very sad. As the Bible tells us that all of the Bible is meant to teach us something and to help us 
as we seek to follow Christ. My intention here this morning is to take chapter 1 and just begin the process of introducing you to this book. First and Second Chronicles were originally one book. Uh, they were separated around the 4th century just for study reasons, and ever since then, when Bibles were printed, it was separated. Uh, it, it has very clear points of separation in the book. I'll explain that later. The subject of the book, First and Second Chronicles, is the temple. It's very clearly the temple. The, we get a lot of details about the temple in these two books. We'll even encounter passages here in Second Chronicles that go into excruciating detail. As to temple worship, we're going to see how the, the money was handled, how the preparations were made, the organization of leadership, a lot of things that we may not look at and say, you know what, I'm not sure how this is relevant to me. Now, while the temple is clearly the subject of this book, it is not the point. I'm going to share with you what the point of that book, what this book is when we get to the end. Now, it's very clear that there is, an, like I said, it's very easily divided. Uh, if you want an outline for Second Chronicles, here it is. You ready for it? Chapters 1 through 9 are about Solomon. And then chapters uh, 10 through 36 is everybody else. Pretty simple outline. That's actually how the book is divided uh, as far as Second Chronicles is concerned. So this morning, I just, bear with me, I want to introduce you again. I want to take this first chapter and introduce you to the three lessons. We have three lessons that we are going to encounter as we make our way through this book. Number one, the first lesson we're going to see in Second Chronicles is this, that God has always been our helper. God has always been our helper. In verse 1 here, you see a phrase that is found over and over in both First and Second Chronicles. And that is the phrase, the Lord his God was with him. In Chronicles, that phrase, the Lord God was with them, means that God was their source of help. Where we're going to see God be a help in the midst of a struggle. We're going to see God be a help in the midst of a trial. We're going to see God be a help when there needs to be a decision made. And we're going to see God be a help when there is a ginormous, impossible task standing in front of God's people. Now, if you go all the way back to 1 Chronicles, one of the things you'll notice, or most people will notice as they get into it, is you get about seven chapters of just names. And most of those names we skim over because we simply can't pronounce them. But there's a point to those seven chapters. I want you to think of it this way. First Chronicles opens by essentially pulling down the family photo album and beginning to, for example, point at great-great-grandpa. And those lists are to tell us about how great-great-grandpa came to this country with two cents in his pocket, maybe a bum leg, couldn't speak any English. And then you, as the children gathered around the story, are supposed to ask the question, well then how did great-great-grandpa survive? And the answer is, the Lord his God was with him. And then the story goes on. Maybe you talk about how great-great-grandpa learned to play the harp and met a nice girl. And, and then they had to face the, the great war and they had to live on uh, small provisions and maybe five cents a day. And again, you, the reader, are supposed to read those things and go, then how in the world did any of these people survive? And the answer is, 
because the Lord their God was with them. The rest of 1 Chronicles focuses on the life of David. And you get several chapters about his rise to power, how he defeated enemies, how the people gathered around him and rallied around him and eventually made him king when Saul died. And then we watch David as he prospers in pretty much everything that he does. In fact, we get all these lists of all the great building materials that he is able to gather for the purpose of building this great temple. And you're supposed to read all that, and you're supposed to ask the question, how does a shepherd rise to power, defeat giants, How does he defeat armies? How does he end up gathering a kingdom and building that kingdom and able to gather all of these tremendous resources to build this great temple for God? And the answer is, because the Lord his God was with him. And here at the beginning of 2 Chronicles, at the very opening, we come to Solomon and the author immediately wants us to know that everything he's already said is still true. That the reason Solomon is going to succeed, the reason he is going to end up ruling over a strong and healthy kingdom is because why, class? Because the Lord, his God, is with him. Now the purpose of this focus in this book is very, very clear. Because all of us from back then, when I say us, the people of God, from back then to today... All of us face the temptation to think that there are safer and more successful forms of help. The Bible calls this double-mindedness. You and I might face a trial or a struggle or we might have to make a decision or perhaps a great big task like the expo and wild game feed is in front of you. And you know in your head you're supposed to go to God for help. You've got all the Christian lingo down, you've read all of the books, you've heard all of the sermons, you in fact bought the bumper sticker and the shirt, but something inside of you goes, I don't know, will he really help? Now I want to be clear because this has been in the news, we are not talking about when you get a headache and saying, you know what, maybe I need to pray about this headache before I take an aspirin. We have seen in the news people who have talked about how they don't depend upon anything else than God for their sick children or for their difficulties. And they present themselves as more spiritual or more full of faith because they're able to say, you know what, I don't go to the doctor. I just want you, I I could go into that. But I just want you to know that's terrible theology. What we're talking about here, when we say that God has always been our help, are those moments when you're staring down an incredibly stubborn child. Right after they've drawn a Batmobile with permanent marker on your kitchen wall. And you say out loud, Lord, help me. This is about those Thursday nights when you're sitting there alone. And maybe things have not gone the way you thought they should. And all sorts of temptations and all sorts of thoughts enter your mind. This is the moment when you need to call for help. And these are the moments when a church family has to decide whether or not they're going to take the risk. If they're going to spend the money, make the effort, 
Not knowing if it's the right decision. Not knowing if we'll ever see any results from it. You see, the original, the first readers of this book, they had the problem of trying to build a wall while their enemies were watching. They had the problem of trying to rebuild a temple in a city that nobody wanted to live in. And those people and we today need to be reminded that God has always, always been our helper. So that's one lesson we're going to find in Second Chronicles. I'll give you the second lesson we will find in Second Chronicles. And that is this. That corporate worship, the gathering of God's people for the purpose of worship, that's what the word corporate means. Corporate worship has always been critical. Corporate worship has always been critical. We have an action here at the beginning of chapter 1 that is, again, one of those things that happens throughout the book. And that is the gathering of people for the purpose of worship. This has already happened almost 10 times in First Chronicles. And so here, again, at the beginning of Second Chronicles, we have the gathering of God's people for the purpose of worship to mark the beginning of Solomon's reign. And so here they are, they go up to Gibeon, that's where the tent of meeting was, that's where Moses met with God. They go to this altar that's made of bronze, that was made specifically for sacrifices to God. And here they are, reading about it. You imagine coming to Jerusalem, the temple's gone, the walls are gone. And you're reading about the fact that they gathered together for worship. And you're standing around. There's walls to be built. There's houses that need to go up. And yet the book continues to emphasize the centrality or the need of the temple. Now this isn't, you know, I was thinking as I was studying, this isn't like how western towns were founded. You know, when, when, uh, when population moved west, when you were going to found a town, the first thing you would put up is the church. Now, the reason for that was practical, because your church was not only a church, it was also uh, the one-room schoolhouse, was often then the village hall, and the place of any type of large gathering. The focus here, the encouragement to come back and to rebuild the temple, was encouragement that came from the fact that they could, the only reason to build the temple, let me put it this way, the only reason to build the temple was for the purpose of corporate worship. And then it's recorded for us as Solomon and the people, they inquire of God, they offer thousands of burnt offerings. Now, if you remember from our study in Leviticus, the burnt offering is probably the most common form of worship. It's very, if you want a kind of a parallel, it's actually very similar to the idea of us taking up an offering every Sunday. And so you put everything, it's literally putting everything on the altar and giving it to God. Now, you do this not because you want a blessing. You do this not because you want forgiveness. That's a whole different sacrifice. This was an act purely and solely an act of worship. And then the text tells us in response to this worship service, God appears to Solomon. And as a result, Solomon is given wisdom. Now he gets other blessings, but the point of the text is to tell us that this was the moment, this worship uh, experience this worship gathering. This was the moment when a young, inexperienced Solomon became wise King Solomon. So let me ask you a question. If you were among those returning to Jerusalem, what would you consider to be the most critical thing needed? You come to a city that doesn't have walls, and so you're surrounded, you're completely vulnerable to your political enemies. 
There are countries and governments who do not want to see you succeed. In fact, they would love to just see you eliminated. So is the wall the most necessary thing? But then you consider also that they were vulnerable culturally. Because the city had been destroyed, anything they would need, all of their materials, all their foods, would have to come from the surrounding nations. They had no choice. (laughs) They were going to have to interact with cultures and with people who embraced things not only forbidden by God, but were anti-God. So maybe you think, no, not just the walls. We need to get our homes. We need to get our city going. You see, they, they were under tremendous pressure. They were vulnerable on every side. Then you ask yourself the question today, do Christians, do God's people still face the political pressure of those who would be happy to see us fail? Do we still face leaders who would not be sad at all if we just went away? What about cultural pressures? As they continue to grow and we continue to have to interact more and more with a culture that calls evil good and good evil... Do we have to face these things too? Yes. And Chronicles is going to give us the direction we need in how to respond to this vulnerability. How do we resist all those things that want to pull us away from the gathering of the community of God's people? How do we resist all of those things that want to pull our eyes off the temple of our cleansing, Jesus Christ? And Chronicle's answer is going to be, we need to organize and sing. Corporate worship has always been critical. And then three, the last lesson that we're going to see here in 2 Chronicles is this. That everything, number three, everything has always been by God's grace. Everything has always been by God's grace. If you look at verses 13 through 17, it's a synopsis of how great and mighty Solomon became. But buried just before this, and buried in this section, are some pieces of information that the writer of this book is supposing, because he's figuring you've read First Chronicles, and that you've read First and Second Samuel, he's supposing you will notice something. If you go back to the worship service at the beginning of chapter 1, there's some information there that tells us that that worship service should have never taken place. The text tells us that they went to Gibeon and they went to a high place to worship. Well, earlier, God forbid worship in a high place. And then at the end of this text... We get detail about how Solomon sent men to Egypt to purchase horses and chariots. Another thing that God had expressly forbidden. This is not going to be the only place we'll see this. We are going to encounter a number of times when God is blessing and helping his people. And we're going to read how his people did everything the wrong way. With every detail, with every story, and every word in Chronicles, we are going to learn about God's grace. 
Well, let me explain it this way. There isn't much in 2 Chronicles that is not recorded somewhere else for us. In fact, most people, if you read through your Bible in a year, notice after First and Second Kings, you get into Chronicles, this sounds an awful lot like the same thing. But let me explain something to you. First and Second Kings were written by Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's purpose in writing First and Second Kings, again, used to be one book, was to tell us or show us how God's people ran headfirst into the wall of God's judgment. Second Kings ends on the sad note of God's people being taken captive into Babylon. It's the story told from an, an entirely negative point of view. But First and Second Chronicles tells the exact same story with a bit of a twist. This one was written by Ezra. Now, he doesn't hide the sin. He doesn't hide the rebellion. He doesn't hide the shortcomings. All of it's on display. But we watch that while that's on display, the grace of God continued to help his people. In 2 Chronicles, towards the end, we're told about how God's people, because of God's judgment, were taken off to Babylon. The 2 Chronicles doesn't end there. 2 Chronicles ends in chapter 36, verse 22, by telling us it was the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And then we're told how the grace of God brought his people, in spite of everything, all the way back home. So right here in this first chapter, we get a mention of Moses. And we're reminded of God's grace and how the people who met with God at Mount Sinai met with him after the grace of God and his mercy had already rescued them from Egypt. We're going to be reminded in this book of the covenant God made with Abraham and how that came, graciously came, to a pagan man who had to be called out of Ur. And we're going to be reminded of the promises that God made to David and how God continues to keep those promises even after David's great failures. Because all of it was dependent upon God's wonderful, matchless grace. But there's also going to be no doubt that God desires and commands obedience. The author of Chronicles is going to tell us about those who did in fact seek what God wanted them to do and to do it the way God wanted them to do it. There's going to be emphasis here on the need for doctrine and theology. There's going to be an emphasis here about the need for righteousness and holiness. But all of it's going to be framed as a type of pilgrimage and warnings that we must be careful of ever falling into some idea that there is some form of perfectionism to look back on or some form of perfectionism to arrive at in order to force God's hands of blessing. No, in fact, what we're going to see here is that the life of faith, the pilgrimage of faith, with all of its ups and downs, all of its successes and failures, that not a single person actually makes it to the end of the pilgrim. Not a single Christian makes it all the way home if it was not for the grace of God. And that reality is going to move us, or Lord willing, will move us from moving an effort to be holy and righteous as something we do to earn something from God, but actually an action based on a joyous reality that we have a very gracious God. So those are our lessons from Second Chronicles.
God has always been our helper. Of course, the great example is Christ. The Bible tells us he died for us while we were yet sinners. And then the New Testament's going to expand on this as God is our helper, as Jesus tells us to ask and seek and knock. The author of Hebrews telling us to come boldly with our requests. And Philippians telling us to make our requests known to God. God has always been our helper, has always been the helper of his people through trial, through struggle, through decisions, and through tasks. Corporate worship has always been critical. And we read in our New Testament, we see how many times the corporate body invited again and again to set our eyes upon Jesus, our temple of cleansing. The preacher then called again and again to preach and teach Christ. And the people called to gather and to sing about and to Christ. And we see that faithfulness during political vulnerability, during cultural vulnerability, faithfulness comes and is critical to the corporate worship of God's people. And then lastly, everything is by God's grace. By grace we were saved. By grace we are blessed. Nothing we get to boast about. And yes, we'll be commanded to put off of our wicked human tendencies. We're going to be called to be imitating Christ in all of his perfect obedience. We're told in Romans to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But we're also going to see that all those things are only possible and none of those things will ever happen unless the grace of God, as we see it in the blood of Christ, and we see it as bigger, deeper, and wider than our sin. So here you go. What do you get when you bring all of this together? I told you at the end of the sermon, I'd tell you the point of Second Chronicles. Here's the point of the book. God's people, able to face current difficult circumstances, able to face giant, seemingly undoable tasks that need to be done, and God's people facing scary, unpredictable futures, with hope that is based on God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we go through this book this year and by your grace and mercy for continued years, that it would build us and make us to be the kind of people who can face all of the different things that we will face with hope because of your faithfulness. Help us, Father, to know that you have always been our helper, the critical importance of gathering for worship, and be reminded that everything has always been by your grace. We thank you for the lessons found in this book, and we pray again that you be with us as we journey through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close the service this morning, take your hymnals, turn to 400.